I'm Sienna. I'm the kid. I'm Sarah. I'm the mom. This is Queer Kids Straight Mom. Let's talk. Welcome back to Queer Kids Straight Mom. Today, we're talking about the history of drag. We'll start by defining what drag means, which, like so much else around this topic, is not simple because a lot of different people define it in different ways. National Center for Transgender Equality defines drag as a type of entertainment where people dress up and perform, often in highly stylized ways. Encyclopedia Britannica says it often seeks to undo gender norms through doing or dressing the part of the opposite sex. Some historians consider all cross-dressing as drag, which would include men dressing as women in Elizabethan-era theater, vaudeville performers, and comedians on variety shows. Historian Kathleen Casey, author of Race and Gender Benders and American Vaudeville, doesn't think there will ever be a stable meaning of drag. It's about race, class, and sexuality as much as gender, and drag performances can have different meanings for different audiences. If somebody asked you to define drag, what would you say, Sienna? Good question, actually. Because, yeah, I mean, it's true. There's not like a stable, you know, consistent definition, sort of by definition, I guess. It's about dismantling traditional definition. I'm saying definition so many times in this sentence, but it's by definition, it's about dismantling traditional definitions of gender in particular, but also class. Like you just said there, you know, a lot of it also has to do with race. And there are so many different things that are all tied up in it that I don't know that without going into like a novel length explanation that there is a simple definition. But like, to be honest, I don't want to be giving that whole rambling explanation to someone. It's when people dress up as a gender they don't identify with no, but that's not even true because there are trans drag queens as well. It's very complicated. It's pretty complicated. Yeah, that's kind of what I found. And I think it's interesting that you specifically said, you know, that often has a message or a, you know, social commentary to it because that is a distinction that other people make. Melanie Walsh, psychology professor at the University of New Haven, says that drag and cross-dressing are not synonymous because drag emphasizes community and celebration, while cross-dressing is generally a more solitary activity, and that, you know, Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire is not a person dressing in drag because he's just trying to spend more time with his kids. It's not a statement. It's not a celebratory activity. It's not, you know, there's no pomp and circumstance about it. He's just disguising himself. I mean, there's definitely an element in some opinions that sort of self-expression and making some kind of statement are an important part of drag being drag. Before we like really dive in, I just have to say my favorite part of doing research on this topic was the names that people gave the crimes that they arrested people dressed in drag for in like the 1800s. They're pretty funny, but we'll get to that. So where does the word drag even come from? Even this question has a lot of different explanations and you know, dispute over what is correct. I have seen it suggested that it has to do with the big heavy dresses that men wore performing on stage back in, you know, England because they had to drag the dresses along the floor. There is a man that we'll get to, William Dorsey Swan, 
who threw balls called drags, which they think might come from the term grand rag, which is an antiquated term for masquerade balls. That's a theory out there. You have heard something else you told me where it's an acronym. Yeah, I always heard, and this is admittedly just like random people with some degree of authority, next of like club leadership or like TAs. So, eh. But anyway, I always heard that it was an acronym for dress resembling a girl, again, coming from like Elizabethan performances where, yeah, men would dress as women. Lots of theories. Nobody knows for sure. Could be any of those, could be all of them. So, like you just said, women were not allowed to perform in Shakespearean times, even going back to ancient Greece. Men played women's roles in their theatrical productions because women weren't allowed to do that. Women were first allowed on the English stage in the 1660s. One of the first female playwrights, Aphra Ben, created several male roles that were meant to be played by women. And she specifically wrote what is called breeches roles. For political reasons, this drag king and co-creator of DragKingHistory.com, Moby Dick, says this was a way of having her voice heard, talking about politics and social mores that women were not allowed to do. But by putting these women in men's clothes on stage, they were allowed to say things that women weren't supposed to say. So that was a really interesting kind of start to women dressing up as men and just as you know, drag queens get to adopt this ultra-feminine persona. Oh, well, we get to do things that women of the time don't get to do because we're dressed as men. So there have been, through the 1600s through 1800s, various actresses that would dress up in these breeches roles. And there's one, Charlotte Cushman, who was born in Boston in 1816. She became one of America's most popular actresses and then moved to Rome, where she set up a household of all female artists, and her personal papers reveal that all of her romantic and sexual relationships were with women. So over that couple hundred years period, we know of various women that were kind of starting to explore this world of challenging gender roles and norms. Yeah, you know, that's funny because my favorite book series right now called The Last Binding Trilogy, one of the books, A Restless Truth, is about two women who, you know, like they're on a cruise ship and there's a murder mystery and they fall in love. and It's very thrilling. But one of those two characters is an actress who is working in New York, I think. They have a whole conversation about her playing like breaches roles. Anyway, that was that was like the first thing I'd seen about that. Quite interesting. Yeah, I feel like it's not something you hear quite as much about. So that was... Well, it's like, I think there's this assumption that like, oh, drag kings are like a new thing. And they came like after drag queens. And like, no, no, women have been performing masculinity in various ways as well. Right. And the reason that I mentioned that first is I'm kind of going chronologically. And those were the first names, you know, that I came to. They were earlier than, you know, England's first drag queen, the U.S.'s first drag queen. The person seen as England's first drag queen is a gentleman's servant in 18th century England named John Cooper. His character, Serafina, was part of his daily life, not an acting role. Serafina regularly hung out at Molly houses, which were the Times equivalent of a gay bar. And as far as People know from historical accounts, she seemed to get along with people and be a pretty likable character. 
1871, two members of the British aristocracy, Ernest Stella Bolton and Frederick Fanny Park, were caught dressing as women in public. Apparently, this was a pretty common thing for these guys, and they were up to all sorts of shenanigans. What they were charged with was conspiring and inciting persons to commit an unnatural offense, which I found really amusing. It's like they just made up crimes. Well, I mean, it's all laws, right? All laws come from someone doing something that someone didn't like. And then they were like, oh, better come up with a law that makes that illegal. Yep. That was kind of early presence of drag queens in England. In the U.S., William Dorsey Swan, who I mentioned before, is considered the first drag queen in the U.S. He was a formerly enslaved man who hosted drags in the 1880s, these private balls. And one of them was raided by police who encountered men dressed in elegant female attire. They were arrested and charged with being suspicious characters. They're just like, uh, that's kind of that's kind of <laughs> sus. Yeah. In today's language, the crime of being sus. <laughs> like, imagine, imagine if that's what someone was charged with today was just crime being sus. Yeah. So, like I said, these quote unquote crimes were my favorite part of this research. I just found some pretty funny stuff. Interestingly, this was also a time when gender roles for Black people were particularly stringent. And this time of William Dorsey Swan and his drags was kind of part of the formation of drag ball culture. Yeah, well, I'm like, for all, for all the like, haha, being sus, like, actually, this is like really interesting and fascinating on a lot of different levels because like, I mean, even now, Black men face really strict gender roles and assumptions. And part of that is coming from slavery, right, where um, it was seen like black men are like hyper masculine and hypersexual, like specifically towards women. Right. Because of all of these stereotypes and assumptions that were made about black men and developed so that like in order to justify slavery. So actually, yeah, that I think really good example of like, you know, formation of drag culture specifically. It's not just haha, fun to dress up as a woman like this is, you know, a very specific response to those gender roles and a really, really, I'm trying to come up with how to say this, but like, it's just like so much respect to him, I guess. Like, that's obviously a scary thing to do because the police are going to show up and like arrest you all and probably beat you up. And like, yeah, it's just, I just want to learn more about this. This is fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot to learn there. And Actually, some of this came from a historian named Channing Gerard Joseph, who wrote a book about this, House of Swan, Where Slaves Became Queens and Changed the World. Check that out if you're interested in learning more, because it's pretty fascinating. And then in the early 1900s, there became more of an element of performance in the drag culture. Gladys Bentley was a key figure in the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s. An out and proud black lesbian entertainer known for wearing a white tuxedo and top hat and performing songs with body lyrics in speakeasies and underground jazz clubs. In Berlin in the late 19th century through the 1930s, countless cross-dressing balls known as earnings balls or Tunten balls, my German is non-existent, took place at various venues. The star queen of the scene was Hansi Sturm, whose act Miss Eldorado culminated in him throwing his fake breasts into the audience. 
And then vaudeville performer Julian Eltine. Okay, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but I came across in a few different sources. A lot of people were convinced that the persona was the actual actress, not that it was a man dressing up. But vaudeville, the vaudeville world, apparently, cross-dressing was very popular. Julian actually, you know, really embraced this persona. It wasn't just putting on a costume. And, and um, at the end of the performance, he would remove his wig and reveal his gender. And people were completely shocked because they thought that this was an actress, like in real life. So those are some key names in the early years, early centuries of drag. Do you know of any other stories that I've missed? Famous drag performers of the past? No, I don't. Not off the top of my head. I do think what's interesting to think about here is the challenge of making assumptions about people's genders based on the limited resources we have. And, you know, there is a good chance that some of these individuals did identify as the gender they were performing as. But, you know, we don't know and we don't we're not able to go back and talk to them. They would likely wouldn't have even had the language to describe that experience at this point in time. And so, you know, it's very challenging. And of course, there's always the issue of assigning a particular experience to people who are existing in a different time period than us, right? And this is something that we talk about a lot in like queer history. And I'm taking a gender, sex, and family in Chinese history class right now. And it's something we talk about a ton because there's all sorts of queer stuff happening in, in Chinese history. It's so funny. You know, every once in a while, you just come across these texts that are like, oh, no, everyone's gay. What do we do? No one wants to have sex with women anymore. You know, it's I mean, I say that flippantly, but, you know, you it's, it's hard to go back and say this was a gay man because it's so fundamentally a different cultural experience and a different historical experience. And so it's always an interesting thing that comes up, um, I think, when you discuss the history of any any queer experience and especially drag, because there's so much stuff happening there. Yeah. And then you're probably more familiar with characters from the last century. What what do you know about the mid 1900s? To be honest, quite a lot of what I do know is just coming from from the show Pose, which is a really good show. Would highly recommend everyone go watch it. It's really, really good. Acting Jobs has an almost entirely like trans female cast, which is amazing. And yeah, just and I haven't seen the last season, but it basically it's kind of Throughout the 1980s, a group of transgender women who are involved in the New York ball scene. And so what was really revelatory to me about this show is that the ball culture actually was coming not necessarily from a bunch of cis guys who identified as men who were dressing up in drag, but from transgender women, right, who identified as women in their daily life and then would go participate in these these competitions at night and would be, again, performing femininity in a really specific way that's sort of dealing with with race and class and all of these different things. And their performances are critiquing all of those things. It's not so much putting on the costume of a gender you don't identify with. Which was fascinating to me because, of course, today that's that's much more what we think of it, right? We think of, you know, gay men dressing up as women, which is an oversimplification. But that's sort of the prototypical image that we have in our heads. And that's not necessarily where this culture is coming from. You know, it originated as a way of providing community and family for people who didn't have that. And so 
you know, one of the main sort of themes of this whole show is the houses is what they call them. And that's, again, still a thing that we see in drag culture today. But the houses operating not just as like the people you go dance with, but you know, people who would live together, who would cook together, who would support one another, you know, would provide a house for people who needed it, you know, referred to one another as like your drag mother or your house mother. These really, really deep bonds that would form because, again, a lot of these people were kicked out of their homes for being queer. So anyway, great show. Highly recommend. Go watch it if you have Netflix. But that's, again, where a lot of my knowledge comes from. There's you know, such a strong link between what looks on the surface like a simply dramatic performative thing. There are a lot of cultural ties. You know, it's has almost existed as a commentary on the times. The two aristocrats I told you about in 1800s England, Bolton and Park, when they were on trial, Writer Neil McKenna talks about this really capturing the public's attention because there were so many anxieties at the time about masculinity, the shrinking of empire, effeminacy, and a lot of stuff about women not being submissive or invisible anymore. Wow, this sounds sound, very familiar. Sound familiar? And I, you know, there's not total agreement within the drag community about how much cultural relevance or activism or however you want to say it, um, there is. And it even varies throughout the United States and parts of the Deep South. There are places where drag is mostly an entertainment thing. And then coastal areas like California and New York, you know, it tends to be much more tied to politicized action. Well, but I think that speaks to how... There's this idea that like radical action is this somehow static category and that everyone has to be as radical as they can all the time to make social progress, which is not how lived experience works, right? If you're in San Francisco or you're in New York City, then of course you can like... (laughs) It's not dressing in drag itself is not necessarily going to raise any eyebrows. And so it makes sense that you want to add some kind of social commentary to that if you want to be promoting social change. Right. Sure. Makes sense. If you are in the Deep South, if you're in Montana, so you're in Utah, dressing in drag is radical for a lot of people. Just the simple act of saying you can't assign a certain way of performing gender to me. I'm going to perform gender however I want to is a radical action for a lot of people. And I think this is something I've talked about before, but it's frustrating to see this idea that like, you know, oh, you have to do X, Y, and Z to be like a radical queer when that idea is just, it's radical is constructed by a cultural historical context, right? What's radical today would have been probably unthinkable For a lot of people, you know, 100 years ago and what's commonplace today would have been radical 100 years ago. And so it's not this fixed category. It's it's very much defined by how like the context that we exist in. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it makes a ton of sense that that how drag functions um, would change based on social context. A writer named Matt Cain was talking about um, representation in film and musicals and stuff like that. And 
you know, mentioned 1990s films like The Birdcage and Priscilla Queen of the Desert, the musical Kinky Boots, the show Pose. And you can argue about this in relation to that if you want. But what he says about those is that drag in in these examples is predominantly used as fun window dressing for stories about the gay experience and its clashes with straight culture or merely as a comedic device. But drag can be so much more. Its transformative power presents writers with a unique opportunity on the level of both plot and characterization. I haven't seen Pose. I can see it with The Birdcage and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Right. I've seen Birdcage. I haven't seen Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Absolutely with Birdcage, right? It's it's a joke. It's a visual gag. That sounds like this person has not watched Pose, though. Because again, it's not, you know, the the performance in that, it's not even exactly what we would consider drag today. It's about gender identity. It's about community. It's about family. And it's, you know, the um, the different categories that come in function as like, you know, meaningful elements of the storyline, right? One of the categories that would come up is like, I don't remember how they phrased it, but like, you know, real femme or whatever, like women, like trans women who had transitioned to the point that they have like really, you know, stereotypical women's bodies, like big boobs and big butts and stuff. And it results in one of the characters who's disappointed with how her transition has, her physical transition has been going, getting, I think, like, implants or something like that injections that are supposed to make her body develop further but end up you know making her really sick and it's so it's not just like a sprinkling a set sprinkling or something it's it's very much baked into the show and it's very much i I don't know i i'm like my dude have you seen the show difference of opinion on pose and i haven't seen pose yet so i'm really interested now to to weigh in on this conversation. But yeah, I think it's really easy for people to kind of interpret drag simply as something for humorous effect and miss a lot of the cultural relevance. Well, and I think where it can become really problematic also is that when you treat it as this sort of this gag, like, or or a plot device, you know, you mentioned Mrs. Doubtfire earlier, or, you know, or even in the birdcage to an extent where it's like a man disguising himself as a woman to achieve an agenda. Like, that then does become very problematic when it comes to the lived experience of transgender women, right? Because it plays into this narrative that actually... When someone dresses as a woman, it's so that they can get something they want. It has nothing to do with their internal lived experience, and it has everything to do with external incentives. And that that is an argument that I have seen about drag, that it promotes the narrative that identity is something that you can take on and off, which I disagree with because, of course, there are trans drag queens and there are people who use drag as a way of, you know, commenting on gender roles. There are people who do explore their identity and their more feminine and masculine sides through drag. It's not just about, again, like we've been talking about this entire episode, it's not just about like some kind of joke about, haha, look how feminine, silly women are. But that that is a concern. And I think when it is treated carelessly in media, especially, um, it can definitely be really damaging, especially to transgender women. Yeah. Davina DeCampo, who was runner-up on the first season of RuPaul's Drag Race UK, 
says is because drag is a victim of cultural snobbery. Drag can work on a deeper level, challenging expectations, social constructs, gender norms, and identities. That's what my drag is about, doing and being what you want rather than what we've been conditioned to do and be. That makes the world too complicated for some people to even contemplate, so they dismiss and deride it. So that's a take. I don't want to have to think about that stuff, so I'm just going to see the humor in this and, you know, leave it at that. Moby Dick defines drag king culture as being about usurping male power and privilege and says this is why a lot of people find it unsettling. Drag kings are generally not as popular as drag queens because it's still sort of seen that like men dressing as women is funny and women dressing as men is threatening. That, oh, ha ha, you know, a guy in a woman's dress because it's making him in these people's opinion, look weaker, right? Silly, frivolous. Whereas the idea of a woman taking on men's roles, much more terrifying for the patriarchy. Yeah, well, it's really interesting because, of course, we see the sort of flip side in that when it comes to, like, violent crime directed at queer people, like, um, you know, queer men, drag queens, and trans women tend to be much more the victim of that. I suppose when it comes to drag, it's <laughs> it's a little bit like when Zoe, my friend and I, were at a pro basketball game recently. Zoe was really offended by this dance competition, like, you know, where it's like they they show the dancer on the cam and then it's like everyone cheers and then whoever gets the loudest cheers gets money or whatever. But she was so offended because she was like, well, a man is always going to win that because men dancing and men like making a fool of themselves is seen as funny, whereas women doing it is just like, that's what women do. And so I wonder if it's also about like the perceived entertainment value. And so when it translates over into real life, men behaving or assumed men behaving in these subversive ways is seen as much more threatening um, because, oh, no, that means my masculinity could be taken away. But when it comes to performance, men performing womanhood is not only seen as Ha ha, entertaining because they're making a fool of themselves and sacrificing their masculinity on the altar of entertainment. But it's also it's making fun of women. Right. That's how that's how misogynists would view it, because, you know, all of these things that drag queens are embracing fashion and beauty and glitter and glamour. All of those things to a misogynist are like everything that's wrong with womanhood and everything that makes women inferior. And so for that to be embraced in a sort of performative context is humorous. Whereas if women embrace masculinity in a performative context, that's not entertaining. They're making fun of us now. What? Because it's subverting gender tropes in a different way, I think. And I do think that functions differently in a performative context versus a this is my daily lived experience context, which, again, can overlap. But when it comes to just drag queens versus drag kings, how are they perceived? I think that might be the distinction there. It's also possible that women are just more interesting and entertaining. (laughs) Just throw that out there. It's so interesting how all of this is such a commentary on society and gender roles and perceptions and all of that stuff. So 
crossover into popular society did not start with RuPaul's Drag Race. There have been various times throughout history that, you know, drag has kind of flirted with becoming sort of mainstream. There was an 1870 article in the Times suggesting that in another year or two, drag might have become quite an institution. In 1929, a musical comedy film called Splinters, which told the true story of a touring drag troupe called Le Rouge et Noir, was so successful it spawned two sequels. Gilbert Oakley, who wrote his book Sex Change and Dress Deviation in 1970, said, In Great Britain today, female impersonators are enjoying a vogue unparalleled since the introduction into music hall and pantomime of the comic Dame. There has been a place for the entertainment element of drag for quite some time. I'm interested in the path that its cultural commentary was taking at the same time. How much of that was just entertainment? The people that made those comments in their writing, were they seeing the sort of subversive elements of it or were they just seeing the entertainment like there's a shock value to it and that makes it entertaining but was it william dorsey swans in the late 1800s was it the ballroom culture in the 70s and 80s like or has it always been a sort of greek chorus on society and that's only been recognized recently probably has a lot to do with the artist, right? Like different artists are trying to achieve different things with their art in all contexts. You can't necessarily lump, you know, there might be trends in specific time periods, but you can't just say, ah, yes, in the 1990s, all all writers wanted to achieve this specific goal with their writing, right? That's that's not accurate. You know, some, Mm -hmm. some people just want to entertain with their art. Some people only want to produce really, really deep, meaningful art, and some people want something in between. Shakespeare is a great example of that, right? Like, my dude just wanted to make some money, and all of his work is just, like, sex jokes and chasing each other around on stage, and then, you know, 400 years later, we're like, this is brilliant! (laughs) So it's, you know, I imagine that at any, any given time, you could sample artists who were challenging gender roles with their art and you would get a bunch of different explanations for why they were doing it. I think there's also a tendency, you know, we see drag treated very flippantly in some of those excerpts, right? Like, wow, so entertaining. Ha ha ha. Men dressed as women, like we've been talking about this entire time. And it's because mainstream culture has a tendency to take a thing, flatten it to its entertaining elements and use it for as long as it, you know, makes people money and then, you know, throw it away. And so that's that's one of the things that is really an element of the parts of Pose is voguing gets really, really popular in the 80s. And it's like, oh, wow, look at these drag queens. Look at these artists. And, you know, like one of the main characters gets to go teach voguing classes to all of these white ladies. Oh, and like, you know, they're getting like modeling gigs and stuff. And like, it looks like wow, maybe we can actually be a part of mainstream culture now. And then people get bored and move on. And it's like, eh, no one wants mm-hmm. to come to your class anymore. We're firing you. And so, yeah, I mean, there's there's also this sort of consumerist element 
to all of that, all of that commentary. And, you know, it's always going to influence how popular certain forms of expression are is, can this be turned into money? And if it can't be turned into money, there's going to be less enthusiasm towards it on an institutional level. That makes sense. And there's probably an element within there of the decisions people making in their drag and their presentation based on, can I earn a living doing this? Right. And that's that's always something that we want to be really careful about, right? We don't want to criticize someone being less, um, again, radical in their expression, in their drag, because they're doing what gives them a job and they're doing what people will give them tips for. And if they can't do that, they're not going to have a place to live. It's it's very complicated. And yeah, it's going to influence how drag is created for any individual at any point in time. And I think this is something that actually RuPaul's Drag Race has gotten some, there's been some discourse over this, right? Is is this sort of commodifying drag and making it palatable to a wider audience? Is that a positive or is it a negative because it turns drag into something that exists only for the consumerism of a non-queer, you know, predominantly white audience? And, you know, how how do those two different elements react to one another like does one win out is it a mixed bag it's it's very complicated yeah so like to wrap it up that is exactly it it's very complicated there's so much we could talk for hours about this and i know that i barely scratched the surface of stories that are out there characters so I will, of course, as I always do, cite my sources on the website and I will make a little reading list because it sounds like there are some fascinating books if you want to learn more about any of this or any of these people. All right. On our next episode, we are going to talk about what to do when trusted adults in your child's life, be that a teacher, a mentor, coach, whoever makes some comments or reacts in a way that makes your LGBTQ child feel unaccepted. That, oh, this person I look up to and trust, I think they might be homophobic. We're going to dive into that a little bit and find some resources to help you out and some suggestions if you find yourself in that situation. Because unfortunately, there are all kinds of well-intentioned people working with kids that might not even have any idea that something they've said or a look that has crossed their face might cause a lot of distress in a young person they're working with. Right. You can have one sentence, one expression can have a huge impact. And, a lot, and you know, it might just be that an adult, adult hasn't been through training to like, oh, here are the appropriate ways of responding when a child hints that they might be queer and just not having that context, you know, and not knowing exactly how to respond can absolutely undermine that relationship that you spent years building up. So we want to help from the perspective of, you know, you as someone who cares about that child and doesn't want to see their relationships ruined. Right. So we will dive into that next time. Until then, be cool. Read about the history of drag. It truly is entertaining. Watch Pose. We'll catch you next time. Bye. If you found this podcast helpful, interesting, or just mildly amusing, please consider rating and reviewing us. 
on your podcasting platform of choice. It really helps us to get the word out there and spread this information as far as we can. And as always, check out our website at QueerKidsStraightMom.com or visit us on Facebook, Queer Kids Straight Mom, Instagram at QueerKid.StraightMom or Twitter at QueerKidSTR, the number eight mom. And if you're feeling especially generous, please consider joining our Patreon by searching Queer Kids Straight Mom. It helps us fund this podcast. 